Wednesday, August 10, 2022, here. Five seasons already, Anthony. Can you believe that? That's crazy. I think I, I jumped on board at the end of season one. Yes. No. Yep. Yes? Yep. So you, you started in, what, late 2018? I believe the first episode was the first couple days of January 2019. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So, yeah, I jumped on board at the end of season one. Obviously, kicking off season five now, it's been a hell of a ride. Like, I, I remember when we first started doing this show, it was, I believe, shortly after Elaine Vigneault had got hired. Yes. And then we started covering, like, the Hayes acquisition, the Niskan acquisition, Justin Braun acquisition. It's just, it's crazy how much has gone down in those three years. Like, the summer of 2019 seems like ages ago. Ah, the good old days. Back in there was hope. Yeah, there was a lot of hope. I, I remember like being I was super optimistic about that year and I guess I was justified in thinking so. I guess like thinking back on it now, would you say that 2019-20 was a successful season? It was a successful season that was stomped out because of COVID and the lackluster trade deadline that the Flyers had. And then it was all downhill afterwards. Yeah, like, I honestly wonder, had they, let's say, gone out and gotten, like, I remember leading into that deadline, I wanted Pajot. Alec yeah, Pajot and Alec Martinez. Yeah. And I wonder, like, how that team would have fared. Even, like, assuming the bubble and all that, like, how that team would have done had you added J.G. Pajot and Alec Martinez. Well, it would have been better than uh, Derek Grant and Nate Thompson, that's for sure. Yeah, and like I, I didn't, and again, like I saw, like I know I'm in the minority here, but I never really minded Nate Thompson. I think the big issue with that was Derek Grant yes. because, like, yeah. and even last year, you know, like I remember when they acquired Nate Thompson, like I had heard that, like he had from the Flyers' standpoint, obviously the intangibles really well liked in the room, all that stands up for his teammates. But even from an on-ice perspective, underlying numbers and all that, he had a good season with Winnipeg in 2021. So I, I remember hearing from someone that he had played the majority with on the left wing with, um, what's his name, Matsu Perot, And that their plan was that he was going to play left wing with Scott Lawton on the, the fourth line that Scott Lawton was a much better version of Matthew Perot. And if you look at his underlying numbers from his time in Winnipeg, I believe aside from Matthew Perot, he had the highest expected goal differential and the only positive expected goal differential among Winnipeg forwards. So, I mean, I, I always, th I, like, even to this day, I still think that the biggest issue with Nate Thompson was his deployment. Even last season, like, playing him so much as the fourth line center with like subpar fourth liners. Like let's say when he was centering guys like Isaac Ratcliffe and Zach McEwen, 
I always wondered what it would have been like, even last year, had he played left wing with like Scott Lawton. Yeah, and in the 2020 playoffs, Grant was supposed to be 3C, and then it was Lawton and Thompson on the fourth line, and then Grant completely was wet shit out there, and then Thompson had to go up to the third line and was over-deployed and over his head, and then the entire bottom six collapsed, and, and uh, you know, nobody else particularly played well in that series besides, who was it, Hayes and Voracek or something like that? But, uh, yeah, that was a, was a disaster. What could have been had they known at the time that they could have capitalized and, you know how bad things would have gotten in the couple of years since maybe they would have, uh, you know, tried a little harder. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I look at that playoff round or that season and I was actually talking about this with uh, Dan Knightley. Uh, so credit to him about how like we value playoff hockey more than let's say uh, just random games. And like, I'm sure you've seen over the last, or it's been a few weeks now, but I was saying that, I believe that Ivan Provorov's ceiling is that of Jacob Slavin. And because of the way that Provorov played in 1920, directly compared to Jacob Slavin. Now, in the regular season, I think you can make the case that, like, Slavin was the better player, you know, based on how he impacted the power play, his underlying numbers in terms of, like, expected goals against and all that. But I do think that Provorov was a much better transition defenseman. But that was regular season. If you look at their play in the playoffs in 1920, you look at their Corsi, Slavin at 48, Provorov was 47.98, so pretty much a wash there. Expected goals 4 per 60, Slavin 1.54, Provorov 2.05, and expected goals against per 60, Slavin 2.28, and Provorov 2.35. So even in the playoffs, you could make the case that they were pretty much on par with each other. And I think that you we could all agree that, you know, Slavin was playing in a much better system and team than Ivan Provorov was. And I guess, like, it's kind of twofold where I'm going with this in, is where, like, obviously in Philadelphia, you know, the last, what, five years, they've only been in the playoffs twice or whatnot, you know, 20, 2018 and 2020. But for you, Dan, like, do you take into consideration more playoffs even though maybe the sample size and that's a big word that people like to use especially in the analytics community do you take playoff hockey more serious in terms of your evaluations of players than regular season it's where the leaders rise up and take control and you know they step above the crowd and in Provorov in the short playoff experience that he's had in Philadelphia, because, you know, the rest of the team around him sucks, you know, and he was there in 2018 and he destroyed his shoulder and he was doing, you know, the best he could with a destroyed shoulder. And in 2020 uh, looked good as well. And it's just like, man, you know, if they could have, I, I think he's one of those guys that's built for, for the postseason and built for the heavy minutes and the, you know, the big opportunities. And, you know, they, the, the Flyers have just not given that to him. Um, and, and it's interesting that, you know, and we'll dive into all of this more as we, you know, continue to talk here. But, you know, the fact that they just haven't given Provorov, like, a proper line mate through most of his tenure here, 
it's it's I mean, how many years did he carry around Andrew McDonald to start? You know, three, four, and then he comes in, gets half a season of Matt Niskanen before the world goes to shit, comes back, plays with Justin Braun, and listen, we love Justin Braun on this show, but, you know, he's way over his head. That's not who he should be playing with. So, I mean, Tony D'Angelo, you know, we all know how I feel about that guy, but at the end of the day, this may be, like, the better partner that he's had, at least since Matt, uh, at least since Matt Niskanen, maybe of all time. So you know, hopefully that we kind of see the the Provorov of old because he he's such a critical piece of this team. When he's down, like we saw last season, the entire friggin' defense collapses. But he can put a team on his shoulders. You know, I don't know if he's a bona fide number one elite defenseman. We've had this argument before, but you know, I think he can be very good. And it's just a matter of whether he has the right partner to propel him. And it does at least theoretically feel like D'Angelo could be that guy. We'll have to see what the on ice results look like but you know this could be one of his better partners of his career at this point yeah and even if you go back to 2017-18 that you were just referencing and like look at the look at the top six that the Flyers are playing with in in 17-18 in the playoffs you had McDonald and Provorov you had Gosses Beer and Sanheim and you had Manning and uh, Gudis Jesus and, Christ. And, and that was Sanheim's rookie season and he was, and I remember him being really jerked around by Dave Haxel. Mm-hmm. He was up and down all season long. But those were the six guys that played in the playoffs. I believe Robert Hag made an appearance as well. Although, um, yeah, he did make an appearance as well. Sanheim only played in four games. But Provorov, in his rookie, in his sophomore year, playing with Andrew McDonald, because I believe they split Gosses, Beer, and Provorov for the playoffs, if I'm not mistaken. You know, a 52. Uh, 0.43 core, um, sorry, never mind. 49.89 Corsi percentage, uh, 2.32 expected goals for per 60, 2.11 expected goals against per 60. Like, look, I'm talking about in the grand scheme of things between both playoff appearances, like what is it? 24 games, 22 games. And I understand one was over four years ago. The other one was two years ago. And the last 18 months has really not been good for Ivan Provorov. But again, like I was talking about with Dan Knightley, is that like, to me, I really value what players bring when the chips are down. And one thing I didn't bring up in conversation with him, and I'll bring up now because I thought about it since, is like, if you compare the regular season careers of Jake Voracek against Danny Briere, I'm pretty sure Jake Voracek would blow him out of the water. Because we can remember, like, Danny Briere wasn't always, like, a fantastic player in the regular season. You know, especially, like, 09-10, I know... There were rumblings that he was going through some personal matters at the time, but I believe he only had like 52 points. Even like other seasons, like when in Philadelphia. season numbers were never that crazy. Yeah, he had the one season in Buffalo that was like 95 points, but like he was always what, like a 60 to 70 point guy? More or less, yeah. And Voracek, I mean, he had what, two 80 plus point seasons, you know, over 70 points. But like, if you had to take a guy when the chips were down, who are you taking? Briere J. Voracek. Breer. Exactly. And I don't think it's even relatively close. No. And I guess that's why, like, even when we talk about, like, people love shitting on Kevin Hayes, right? Like, so many people love shitting on Kevin Hayes. And, like, again, look, I know that it's not a, um, that it's a small sample size and it's a while ago and I get that. But, like, do we remember 
how Kevin Hayes looked in the playoffs as, let's say, compared to all the other forwards, save 2019, for 20 Kevin Hayes in general was fucking spectacular. He was, he was insane. Like, yeah. he was a dominant two-way def- uh, centerman. But the thing is, is that we could say this, too. Couturier was fantastic in 1920. Like, wasn't that year he won the Selkie? Yes. But here's the thing, is that Couturier no-showed in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Like, he had decent possession numbers, but he really didn't put up any kind of production at all. And it just goes to show that, you know, you kind of have to value sometimes what people bring when the chips are down. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we may never see the playoffs here in Philadelphia again. So, (sighs) you know, after (laughs) it's last time we talked was, I believe, right after free agency. And, you know, obviously there there was the initial shock and awe of the lack of action by the Flyers and Chuck Fletcher. Now that it's been a couple of weeks, everything's calmed down. The, the you know, the, the, the blood is less boiled. I think we just, uh, I, I've, I've acknowledged the fact that they're going to suck this year, that they've thrown away another season. The franchise is set back even further than it already was because of the complete inactivity one way or another. For me, it's like, you know, it's less about the on-ice product and, you know, it's kind of of what are we getting with John Tortorella? You know, what what was the plan going into this year and how much stock are they putting in Tortorella? And and it's interesting because I think if the stars align and your defense stays healthy and plays well. Provorov, D'Angelo, bring the best out. Sandheimer, Slyne, and play at what they were last year. York and Braun just chill in the third pair. Carter Hart continues to play out of his mind. Tortorella brings the best out of the defensive system as a whole. Katurian Hayes are back. Like, this could potentially be a decent little defensive team, but is it a playoff team? I feel like at absolute best, this is a team that may sneak into a wild card spot if you're absolutely lucky, it's just like, ironically enough, where the blue jackets were under John Tortorella, you know, they may threaten a playoff spot, but you know, they never really get close enough to strike, which (laughs) it's like the worst thing they could possibly do right now is get themselves out of the bottom five, but don't come anywhere near a playoff spot. And then you finish, you know, 10 to 12 in the draft again, and you take some random dude, you know, the, the complete lack of direction is really going to play out on the ice this year. So uh, how have you felt now that, uh, you know, we've mellowed out a little bit? Well, even when it was happening, I was kind of maybe, I guess, more calm than most. Just because how long had I been saying that I wanted them to really like pump the brakes on trying to become a competitive team? Like I've been saying this and I think you were in the same boat as well. Since like February 2021, all the all the past couple of years don't make sense anymore. I've <laughs> lost them all. But and and the thing is, is that I remember like heading into the off season as we approached the draft, like talking to my sources. And it's on a side note, it's been really nice to kind of like unplug from that, like not having to text these guys all the time, pissing them off. That's that. <laughs> and just like kind of relaxing and decompressing from it. But I remember talking to the people I know within the organization and I always kept getting a sense that like they weren't going to do much you know I asked about Alex to they always shut it down I asked about Johnny Gaudreau and they always said like look like we like him but like the cap the cap the cap 
I asked about, are you guys going to add like a defenseman, like a big one? Just like, yes, but it, it, it's going to have to be at the right cost and this and that. And I always said like, you know what? I think they're just like screwing with me. You know, I, I think that they're just keeping it very hush hush because of how secretive they were about the coaching search and all that. And I said like, oh, you know, like maybe they're just leaving it to like leak to the big guys, like the the national guys like Saravalli and Friedman and Drager and LeBur, or maybe like the big time local guys like uh, San Filippo or maybe Charlie O'Connor. But then as things started unfolding, I started realizing like, shit, maybe they weren't bullshitting me. <laughs> and maybe a lot of this like talk that Gaudreau was heading there was coming from the Gaudreau camp. And I think that's what we learned here. And I believe Elliot Friedman said on 32 Thoughts, he said that I was too chicken to say it, but I was told from the beginning that the Flyers were never in on Gaudreau. And I remember the text I got shortly after noon um, when free agency opened. What was it, July 13th or whatever it was? Yes. And the text said, I, I asked her, are you guys still in on Gaudreau? And the text I got was, we never were. And I didn't tweet it because I'm just like, well, imagine like I put this out and then they <laughs> sign him. Like, what a fucking shit. But I did yeah. put out a tweet. Yeah, I don't know if you remember. That said that they were out on Johnny Gaudreau. And I guess when everything started unfolding the way it did, I was just like, okay, maybe they had a plan, but holy shit, did they fuck up the communication to people. And I, and I said it before, I'll say it again, I think that if Chuck Fletcher, from the beginning of this offseason, had said, look, I know that Dave Scott said blank check this, blank check that, but after assessing the situation and realizing how hard it is to move money, and it is. Like, I, I did an interview with Bill Guerin a few weeks ago. And on the phone, like, I asked him specifically about it. And there's a quote in the article that he said, like, you know, like, there, we, nobody can move money. Like, there's no room. Like, guys who had good seasons last year are not getting paid. Case in point, um, someone who just re-upped with um, Pittsburgh, Danton Heinen. I think he had like a 20 goal season and he gets like a one year contract or something outside of Bjorkstrand. Did anybody really get moved like for a cap dump? Th that's what I'm saying. Like there, there really has not been any cap dumps. So I know people want to shit on Shreddy, like, I guess, but, and even Patch And okay, look, he got hurt now, Yeah. but like, and, and Bill Guerin mentioned that to me. He said, look at what Don would, or look at what, um, who's the, the GMO Kelly McCrimmon. He's like, Kelly McCrimmon had to pay to get rid of a perennial 40-goal scorer with one year left on his contract. He had yeah. to pay. Like, Max Pacioretty, when healthy, is legitimate, like, very good top-line winger yeah. who can score you 40 goals. And if you put him on the left wing with Svechnikov and Sebastian Ajo, I think he could get 45 goals. Like, that, Max Pacioretty is a really good player. And the Hurricanes got him for free with a defenseman. So, I mean, the fact that JVR, the cost to get rid of JVR was a 2023 first-round pick doesn't shock me. And am I ha am I mad that Chuck Fletcher didn't pay that price? I mean, probably not, to be honest with you. But again, like, why couldn't you say this to people? That's the thing. And, and that... that, that... <sighs> 
if the Flyers were convinced that they weren't going to do anything, like, I don't know. That 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 is where the heat comes from, from people like me. Exactly. And, and you know, the, the loudest... You've pissed off your fan base by telling them you were going to do something, especially in the summer when hometown hero Johnny Gaudreau's available, and then you don't do anything. I mean, anything! Three draft picks on Tony D'Angelo in four years and a no-movement cause uh, for Nick Delorier. What they fucking do? You know, like they, it was it was the complete opposite of the message that they were trying to tell us. And, like... <laughs> It always makes me wonder, like, how cognizant the organization is of the damage they're doing to the fan base when they do shit like that. And, and this is all the business side of, of, you know, your attendance is in the fucking toilet. Nobody's paying to watch this 25-win team. You've been sub-500 for two years now. Three of the last four have been terrible. Most of the last decade's been a complete fucking waste. And you go out and tell people, we got a blank check and we're going to be aggressive, and you walk away with Nick Delorier. It's just... You know, should they have paid up for for JVR? I don't know. I guess not. It, it, when all things are considered, but fucking hell, man! Like you, you, the, the the damage you're doing to the fans who are already just in their last straw because you couldn't just come out and be honest. You know, if they just said, "Hey, we're gonna take a year. We're gonna you know take our best shot at Bedard and, and call it a day and try again next summer," like. I don't think I'd be thrilled with that, but you know what? It's a strategy that you seem to be following to this point. But their their, their words do not mix with their actions, and you're just pouring gasoline on a fire at that point. Yeah, and and this is like remember when we were talking about? I think it was more last season when we were saying like if you fix one problem, another one opens up, or you fix that, then something else opens up. Like, look, everyone, what was the main thing? Well, if they weren't going to, like, they didn't have to move JVR, they just shouldn't have signed Ristolainen and Tony (laughs) D'Angelo, and they would have gotten, and they would have had the money to get Goudreau. Okay, fine. Fair enough. And you know what? To be honest, by the sounds of it, they probably could have gotten Johnny Goudreau for, like, $9 million. Yeah, probably. So let's just say. So let's say you don't sign Ristolainen, you don't sign Tony D'Angelo, you sign Goudreau for $9 million a year, and you have $1.1 million left over to, let's say, get a legitimate backup. Let's say who like who was the best backup available? Yarrow Halak, whatever. Probably pa- take your take your pick. Okay. Are the Flyers a better team with Johnny Gaudreau, but no Tony D'Angelo and no Rasmus Ristolainen? Probably not, because there were no real solid right-handed replacements on the market either. Yeah, because like, look, a lot of people say like, well, Jan Ruda and Ilya Labushin. Okay, maybe to replace if Ross Ellis was healthy, fine, but you don't have Ryan Ellis, and that's the whole issue. So let's say <laughs> Labushkin, and... fucking Ronnie Adderd, and Jan Ruda on your right side—that'll win you some games. Yeah, and so like, is that? And I think that that's what people don't really like. Even when people bitch about Rosmus Ristolainen, okay, we hate Ristolainen. Got it, fine. You still had to allocate that money to, to a top four defenseman. No. Okay, well, we should have given it to Jan Ruda. I think Ruda got like two point seven five million. Okay, fine. Let's say you had to pay him three three million to come to Philadelphia, or three point five million to come to Philadelphia, because he's not going to take Philadelphia for two point seven five when he could get that in Pittsburgh, right? Yeah. So now you're going to bring in Jan Ruda, who I believe is thirty two years old. Yes. And you're going to play him in a top four role for the first time without Victor Hedman. And it, and I do think that 
a lot of the thought process here from the Flyers is saying that no matter what, if we so choose, this is our top four for the next five years. And we just talked about it. I think that they need some continuity on that back end. It can't always be like, okay, we got this stopgap onto the next and onto the next and onto the next and onto the next. I think they realized that they had something well with Sanheim and Ristolainen. Now, granted, Sanheim's the better defenseman. Sanheim played better, played well with everyone last year, for sure. But he worked well with Ristolainen, and they like playing together. I can tell you that. And then they would say, like, we want to try and find that with Provorov. But again, not a stopgap. We want someone who could be here, theoretically, for the next three to five years. And Tony D'Angelo can be that. Now, do I think that, you know, this is a playoff team, like we said? No. But I do think that maybe if we look back, like, they did, they made these moves with Ristolainen and Tony D'Angelo to try and, I think, just stabilize the defense. And I and I do like their defense, to be honest with you. Even if there's no Ryan Ellis, I think this is a pretty good defense. Like, I would say it's, like, in the top half of the league. Would you it's not got agree? potential. Yeah. I think these top four could be a complete disaster if they wanted to. But if they're on a good night, I, I think they could be a very solid six-man team back there. And I really like their third pair, to yes. be honest with York you. York and Braun provided Braun can just play in the third pair this year and nobody gets hurt above him. And he can just chill down there with Cam York. That's an awesome third pair. And I think that you're going to see a lot of mixing and matching with, like, not so much Sanheim and Ristolainen, but I, I'm i really curious to see how much, like, mixing and matching they do with, like, York and Braun and, like, Provorov and D'Angelo. Because, like, I could see points where they're, like, they, they kind of swap Braun and D'Angelo maybe for, like, defensive zone stars and D'Angelo, like, stuff like that. But I ask you, like, you bring in Johnny Gaudreau, and yes, you save, a, you get a lot of goodwill built up with your fan base, but at the same time, is it a better team? And now you're locked into a seven-year contract uh, paying a guy $9 million well into his 30s. Now, look, do I think that all in all, like, everything would come out pretty much equal? Yeah, probably, but that's why I'm just saying, like, to me, even if they would have gotten Gaudreau or this, it wouldn't have done anything in terms of pushing the needle forward. All it would have done is really lock in long-term cap, as opposed to, let's say, D'Angelo, who's on a two-year contract, and Ristolainen, who's on a five-year contract, and both are younger than Johnny Gaudreau. I just think that I this the problem here is the communication. And if I was hearing this come out from the organization... And I'm saying, like, at least some people in that front office knew this. At least some people had a sense that it was going in this direction. Why didn't you guys think it would have been a good idea to communicate this when clearly so many people thought, based on your press conference in January, that the complete opposite was going to happen? And, and like, Gaudreau is is a two-way street. Like, do the Flyers need another 30-year-old locked up to a long-term contract with a disgustingly high cap hit. No! Fuck! Fuck no! That's the last thing this team needs. But you hear about the Blue Jackets selling season tickets hand over fist and the money they're racking in, and, you know, that that's that's what Gaudreau was, you know? The hometown guy that's going to sell tickets and put asses in seats. You know, that that... that from a hockey side, it doesn't make a lot of sense. From a business side, it made a lot of sense. He would have immediately been your best forward. But 
you don't have anybody to insulate him. There's nobody that he's going to carry. You, you, the money screws everything up for the long term. It, so it was such it, I, like I understand why they didn't do it, but it. it I, I guess I don't know. It's all equal, I suppose, as you said. And if they, you know, got rid of uh, Risto and D'Angelo and had Gaudreau, but fuck, I don't know. The the thing with Ristolainen, and this was the thing at the time, everybody fucking lost their minds when Ristolainen resigned because they don't like the guy, right? Because the fucking charts are bad. But at the end of the day, like. $5.1 million is a pay cut, and if they didn't give it to him, they would have give you know, $5 million or more to some other random fucking middle pair right-handed defenseman. You know, Ristolainen's... It doesn't matter. You know, who the... I don't know. It's just... The, the, the message they gave to the fans was not the right move, and it made them look even worse because of it. And, which is the issue. Which is the issue, Yeah. You know, if you want to throw away another season, that's fine, but at least tell people. And they probably didn't want to tell people because they thought, well, nobody's going to buy tickets if we're going to lose next year. But turns out nobody's going to buy tickets because you fucked them in the ass by not giving them a good product on the ice. <laughs> so they, you know, I guess damned if you do, damned if you don't in this situation for this stupid team. But yeah, it's definitely the communication lack thereof from this current regime that is, you know, severing their already damaged relationship with the fans. Because everyone, like, I'm sure you remember, it wasn't too long ago that everyone was bitching and ripping apart the idea of an aggressive retool. Like, oh, they're yeah, going to get Goudreau and blow all this cap space and they're going to part with assets to dump JVR and um, who was the and You know, they're going to buy out guys, which they actually they did. But I'm just saying, like, and everyone was complaining about it. And then they decide not to do that. And people are mad. So there are some pe- there are. There is a part of it, like you just said, that it is damned if you do, if damned if you don't. And look, I'm not defending this. It doesn't help that they brought in fucking Nick Deloria and Tony D'Angelo with that money either. Which, which, it, which is another issue. And look, like both guys in a vacuum, I don't mind. Like I actually think Tony D'Angelo is going to work really well with Provorov. Hopefully. My only issue with this is just like, how is it going to be with D'Angelo and Ristolainen in the top four? That's more my issue. But individually, I don't mind either player. I like Tony D'Angelo. Nick Delorier, like, I think he's going to be a really fun player. I think I'm sure that... once the season starts and he's doing his thing, I won't have a problem with him. Four look, years, like... $1.7 million with a uh, limited no-trade clause between two years. It's fucking ludicrous, especially when you bought out everyone's favorite player, Oscar Lindblom, to make it happen. Exactly, and that's the issue. Because, like, look, I remember in 2011-12, the Flyers gave Max Talbot a five-year contract at 1.75 mil. And the cap back then was 64.3, I think. Something like that, yeah. So, like, I don't, I'm not really good with math, but let's just say for argument's sake, it was, his cap hit was $2.3 million if you prorated it today. Max Talbot, that kind of player at that time, was he worth $2.3 million for five years? Probably not. Or, but the thing is, is that they were in a cup window. And if you're ready to win a cup and you think that Nick Deloria could help push you over the edge and you have the cap space, go ahead and do it. Do it. Like when the, when the Vegas Golden Knights signed Ryan Reeves to a three-year deal at $1.75 million and the Rangers subsequently acquired him at that price tag, no one said anything because everyone's just like, okay, this is the team or teams, pardon me, 
looking to push for a Stanley Cup. And they feel that this guy could help. Is he overpaid? Probably. But they're in a cup window. They have the cap space, so who cares? And I think Delorier fits right in that mix. I think Delorier is probably a better hockey player than Ryan Reeves. He's, you know, probably a top three fighter in the NHL. I think he's an above average defensive player as far as fourth liners go. I think he's a decent penalty killer, especially as far as fourth liners go. Can't bring you much in the terms of offense, but like, I think he's going to be a fine hockey player. It's just like, why are you making that kind of deal now? Like, I think he's going to bring a lot to the table. I think he's, he checks some boxes as to what they need. We know that they really want to change the culture this year. I get all that. It's just like, are you in a position to be giving that kind of player a four-year contract right now? Look, if they were winning, if they were primed to push for Stanley Cup and they had the cap space to do it, fine, more power to you. Every time you sign a guy in free agency, you're going to probably overpay. It's just the fact of the matter. People get mad all the time, but if you are not prepared to overpay for a guy in free agency, especially a guy who's garnering a lot of attention, like Delorier was, enough you know, credible insiders have said that. Most recently, um, Frank Saravalli on his podcast. But I just don't know if the Flyers were really in a position to be giving out that kind of contract. No. Not when you already have a McEwen on the team and you're two and a half million dollars over the cap and you just bought out Oscar Lindblom to real, uh, realistically resign your RFAs. Like $1.75 million probably could have been used a little smartly, <laughs> a little more smartly this year. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious as to what happens to McEwen now. Are they going to give him a spot or is he going to be lost to waivers when the season starts because i don't know then this and this really boils down to my next point of contention with this team is going to be what are we watching next season what's what's how are they going to roll the lines am i going to be watching james and reamsdyke and patrick brown and zach McEwen and nick delorier every single night or are we finally going to see you know Tanner Lazinski and Wade Allison and Tippett are the young guys. Noah Cates, are they all going to get chances? Or is JVR going to be your top line left winger with fucking Sean Katari and Travis Konechny? How does this work out? How do they play it? And my fear is that we're going to be watching the vets all year. And I, I just, if you're willing to piss away this season, let's at least make some progress pissing away this season with the kids rather than throwing JVR back to the Wolves for another year to boost his trade value. I heard someone say that the other day. I was fucking lost my mind. We gotta play him to fucking boost his trade value, Daniel. Remember that was the old Andrew McDonald thing? We're playing him in the top line to boost his trade value. Fuck off. So I guess that'll be a... Yeah. That'll be that'll be my next complaint throughout the season is if, uh, you know, these guys are playing regular minutes and the kids are being stifled. But... Yeah, uh, Nick Delorier. Not, uh, I don't know. I'm sure once he starts playing, I'll be fine. I typically have a decent amount of respect for these depth guys that can do what he does. But at the other time, it's just like, why? Why now? <laughs> no, and I agree with that. Like, it, like, if all things remain equal, like, I would assume Patrick Brown and Zach McEwen are kind of like your 13th, 14th guys. Maybe not so much McEwen. It's because, like, I, I don't know really what where a guy like Wade Allison stands. Like... Is he a guy that they feel is only going to make the team if he's in the top in the top nine, or could he be a fourth line guy with let's say Lazinski and Nick Delorier? 
Because in my mind, I'm saying like Lazinski is going to be your four C. Yeah. Delore is going to be on the left wing, and then you're going to have one of McEwen or Allison on your fourth line. And let's just say hypothetically, it's Delorie, Lazinski, Allison. It's a pretty fun fourth line. That's a pretty good fourth line. Yeah, I can handle that. I mean, Allison has the uses on the power play as well. You would be getting more than just putting him on the fourth line at that point. You'd be giving him the Joel Faraby treatment from his rookie season. Yeah. Or maybe maybe a Noah Cates if he could play the right side. But like I because let's let's look at let's say quote unquote kids who are gonna be on the roster, assuming all things remain equal. I would assume Lazinski makes the team as the fourth line. I would center. hope so. You've got nobody else playing center. If he loses out this year to fucking Patrick Brown. Patrick Brown, it's over. Yeah. So let's say Lazinski. Noah Cates, I think, is a slam dunk. He's I would assume he's going to start the year with Frost and Owen Tippett. Yeah. I don't know if you want to count those guys as kids. I guess they're kind of tweeners at this point. Yeah. Um, then after that, you have Cam York on the back end. You're going to have Felix Sandstrom. And that's actually, before we go any further, that's one thing a lot of people have been complaining about that I'm actually happy about. I'm really happy that Felix Sandstrom's going to get a crack here as the backup goaltender. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot of the, the, this as well. The fans very much are questioning the backup goaltender and prefer Grosnick over Sandstrom, and I'm I'm baffled. I think it's awesome that Felix Sandstrom has finally got a goddamn look in the NHL. Uh, the guy absolutely deserves it. Um, you know, his numbers were nothing special uh, in the AHL and really even the NHL last year. Um, but that's because he was playing behind a dog shit flyer squad than an even bigger pile of dog shit in the Phantoms. But his play is mechanics. He's a very solid goaltender. Um, I think he'll be just fine playing the backup role. Grossnick only has four NHL games to his name. You know, I don't think this guy is stealing the job away, at least hopefully not, uh, unless things go wrong for Sonstrom. But I would assume Sonstrom is your opening night uh, goaltender to start the season. So very yeah, happy and- in that sense. And it's just like, what? Like, I, I remember I was, um, I, like, people were saying, like, well, like, you know, we could have gotten, like, Yarrow Halak or Thomas Grace. I'm just like, but, like, is that Back really? Back goaltender is, like, not even the top 100 things I'm worried about right now. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I look at, like, even if you want to compare him against Martin Jones last season, let's say you wanted to keep Martin Jones, who I think was decent enough in the role he played, but, he like. fine. And look, like, Felix Sandstrom only played five games as compared to Jones who played 35, but like goals saved above expected Felix Sandstrom 5.2 Martin Jones Jones 9.4 goals saved above expected per 60 1.05 for Sandstrom negative 0.282 for Martin Jones. And I'll have, you know, and I'm not going to compare the two, but Sandstrom ranked higher than both Hart and Jones in almost every underlying number category. So like, look, I, I just I don't see why people are so at, upset about this. I think the plan was always to have Sandstrom battle with Fedotov for the backup role. I know that Fedotov more likely than not would have, you know, torched him in that particular battle. But I'm just saying, like, I, I don't think that this is a bad move. And, and it's something if you and, have heart. If you remember towards the beginning of last season before shit went off the rails, you know, Jones only played like once every two weeks. You know, if Hart is playing his game and he's on a roll, Sandstrom's probably not going to see that much ice time anyway. You know, he can handle a spot start once every two weeks and be just fine in the process, you know, in the back-to-backs. It's it, it's fine. Like, <laughs> like, there's so many other things to complain about on this team that the people that have been tearing down the backup goaltending situation, I just find so weird right now. 
And, and it's just, it, it is kind of a case that there are some people who speak out of both sides of their mouth where like, okay, well, we want a year to just play the kids and this and that. And then they make a decision to do that. And they're just like, oh, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> like, it's like, look, man, like you, you like you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. I know you want to shit on everything this team did. And look, I'm not defending it. And look, if I'm a betting man this time next year, Chuck Fletcher's not your general manager because I don't think oh, that the we ownership could only be is, so lucky. Yeah. Like I don't. And like I said, numerous times, I think he fell ass backwards into this. That doesn't mean that I hate everything that happened. It's just that what I hate the most and what scares me the most is that I just don't think there's a plan. Like from what went on 12 months ago to now, it are completely different philosophies. And that isn't good. That's not a good thing. But at the same time, it's okay to recognize that the end result was probably the best case scenario. Because let's just say he had made all the moves that everyone wanted. He didn't sign Ristolainen. He didn't sign Tony D'Angelo. He retained Martin Jones as a backup and he signed Johnny Gaudreau to a $9 million contract. Does that make him keep his job? Probably not, right? He's still probably fired. He just fails in more spectacular fashion. Yeah, He fails in more spectacular fashion. And let's say everyone's dream, which I don't think is a slam dunk by any means, but let's just say hypothetically Danny Breer becomes the GM. Again, I don't think that's a slam dunk, but let's just run with that scenario. Is Danny Breer better off inheriting that hypothetical team or better off inheriting this team? I would say this team puts the next oh, GM in a better position to succeed. <laughs> that's a, that's a tough one. I think he's because fucked I, either way. Well, in my opinion, I'm saying I've said this for a while, and I think I said this even like like four months ago. Is that if they more or less would tread water until the summer of 2023, where you organically are going to walk yourself into cap space. Because the problem is that's not true. They're not walking themselves into cap space. You're losing you JVR. That? That's it. Well, you're losing JVR. And Sandheim's what... contract is up. Are they going to resign him? Do they let him go? If they resign him, kiss that JVR money goodbye. Well, here's the thing: is that now you're right back where you started from with no cap. You're not losing anything. Cam York needs to be re-upped. I, I just wrote a piece about this a few weeks ago because I was bitterly angry looking at these numbers here, and you're not actually losing that much money. That's the downfall of having your entire fucking roster locked up to eight year contracts. Is you don't clear any money on a year to year basis. JVR is seven million, and Sanheim's uh, four point six, and that's provided you don't resign Sanheim. It's not well, a lot look. of money. So as of right now, for next season, they have sixteen point five million dollars in cap space. That's as of right now, assuming that the cap doesn't go Nobody up. Nobody gets resigned, probably... just what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And let's say the cap's going to go up by a million bucks. So let's say $17.5 million. Sweet Johnny Gaudreau cash coming your way. So this is how I see it. Because I think that one way or another, one of Provorov and Sanheim won't be here next year. It, it needs to be the case. Yes. Yeah. One of them won't be here next year. So you're probably going to, like, in my mind, if you re-up Sanheim, he's probably going to get close to Provorov money at like least, i would say yeah. i would say like seven years at six million dollars i think like that's kind of like where i would see sandheim so either way let's just say you move if sandheim. They seven years i'm gonna lose my goddamn mind <laughs> so let's just say i i personally think like the best case scenario for me here is that 
Yeah, like I think Sandheim's gonna have another good season. Like I don't see why not. But you, I think the best case scenario would be to kind of trade high on him at the deadline. Yes. And so let's say you walk yourself out of uh, Sanheim, you walk yourself out of Provorov, Cam York, like the, his sample size is so small that I don't even know what you could possibly give him. Like even comparable. He's not going to get like, paid. That's for sure. Maybe one like point, like the, the tippet deal, the 1.5 kind of thing. Yeah. So then let's say you're back down to hypothetically $16 million. Then I think up front, you're going to have to make a decision on a guy like Travis Konechny or... Which should have been done this year. You, you see, that that's one thing is that, like, even when we were talking about it, like, I think, like, you could have at least traded a Travis Konechny. Konechny is the one. Like, uh, we just talked about this on Flyerside Chat uh, the other night. Like, like even more so than JVR, Konechny is the one guy I cannot believe is coming back. I thought yeah. for sure he was as good as gone, more than anybody else on this team, and he's still here. Yeah, like just like just rant, like just something of like let's say you move Konechny for let's say whatever the the return would have be, been draft picks, draft compensation, whatever, and you signed a guy like I don't know, like I I don't remember some centerman that showed up, but just someone different, just not Travis Konechny or even like a Nito Niederreiter. Like Nino Niederreiter was a guy, I think he signed for two years at two and a half million dollars in Nashville or something like just something like that. Just something to say, like, look, we're changing it up a bit. OK, we're we're opening a path for a consistent roster spot for Tyson Forster, Wade Allison or Bobby Brink. And I think we talked about it, too, is that like if they had just traded Travis Konechny, you would have felt different because yep. at least they would have changed up something up front. Right. Yep. And absolutely. So, like, he's the, like, that's a move. And, look, I know, like, even when that uh, psycho Bob betting guy tried to, remember when he came mm, after oh, me? Oh, yeah, incarcerated Bob. Incarcerated Bob, yeah, because uh, I, I debunked his connection. I don't know how he that... tweets when he's incarcerated, but. Yeah, I know. He has something weird going on back there. <laughs> but, yeah, like, essentially, for me, I'm saying, like, that was another scenario where I asked about our team's calling about Travis Konechny, and they shut it down completely. I don't think they had any, I real like, I think that they like floated, like, and I don't think that they didn't even take calls on connecting. I think that was garbage, but I think that they quickly realized that for guys like connecting and Provorov, the market nearly wasn't there at, in terms of how they view their players Probably. for Provorov. I think that's an absolutely good move. Connecting. I think they're maybe overrating him a bit. Yes, and I think everybody does. It's a problem. Yeah, I, I think Konechny, and look, maybe I'm wrong, I hope I'm wrong, but is a guy to me, and again, because of the playoff performance, I just... His zero goals in 22 playoff games or whatever it is. And I think, aren't we basing, like, his elite numbers on a very small sample size? Wasn't From it based... Like three years ago, when he rode Claude Giroux and Sean Couturier's coattails? Yeah. Wasn't it basically, like, October, November, December, and then he started coming down in the new year? Yeah. So, look, I, I think they're overrating him a bit, but whatever. Fine. They they want to give him one last kick at the can. So they completely More. kill his value next summer when they try and move him. So I, I just think that next year you're going to have, just by osmosis, you're going to have probably, you know, when you lose a Sanheim or a Provorov, you lose a JVR, you re-sign, um, what's his face, Cam York, you're going to have about $16 million in cap space. Then you got to make a decision on a guy like Travis on on a guy like Travis Konechny. 
you're probably going to re-sign a guy like Morgan Frost to whatever you think or Noah Cates to these guys. So I think that when all is said and done here, like you're probably going to have, and that's barring you making another big move, but because like, let's say if Ryan Ellis comes back, if Ryan Ellis by some grace of God comes back and is healthy, then do you look to explore a trade it's with about, Tony uh, 18 million, I believe is the number between JVR, Sanheim, Braun, the uh, 6 million or so from ELCs and league minimum deals coming up. It's about 18 million total. So and that's even provided they don't resign Sanheim. And let's say you re-sign guys like York and you bring back, like, uh, I don't know, like Noah Cates, Morgan Frost on, like, slight increases, guys like that, Ronnie Adderd. Like, how much are you looking at here in terms of cap space? Like, $12 million? You could probably lock up all these guys for... Frost at a million, Cates at 1.5, you know. I don't think any of those guys are going to get anything overly crazy, uh, the the pending RFAs. Probably so what I... a million each. And then I, I would assume that you're probably going to roll with another backup goaltender that's kind of like maybe Fedotov is allowed to, you know, live Sons again. Sons sign next summer, uh, next season as well. Yeah, he's signed too. Urson signed. So what I'm saying is like even if you re-sign some guys providing you don't bring back Sanheim, you could walk yourself here into like a decent amount of cap space. And then, like, I don't know, like, off the top of my head, like, who are some big free agents next year. But Ooh, let's say even it. you have $12 million to play with. Or even, even let's say, $10 million. Got just the, to make uh, it. Ryan O'Reilly, Dylan Larkin, Nathan McKinnon, JT Miller, Bo Horvat, Sean Monahan, Patrick Kane, David Pasternak, uh, Huberto Resign, Pacioretty, Mier, uh, Tarasenko, Bertuzzi. Doomba, Severson, Orlov, Eric Johnson, Shane Gossespierre, Jonathan Quick, Frederick Anderson, Alex Njelkovic, and Mackenzie Blackwood are some notable names next season. So uh, I, would we say that it's a better class than this season? If anybody makes it that far, yeah. So like UFA... Who would already like... resign? Sounds like Larkin may be there once those two... I mean, Nathan McKinnon's not leaving Colorado one way or the other. So if Pasternak hits, that'd be great. Maybe Patrick Kane. No, oh my God, Patrick can't imagine. Like, it just comes full circle. What is it, like 15 years later? Yeah. It, I guess it really just depends on, like, what their needs would be. Like, I would assume. And that's they, assuming they even fucking attempt anything next summer. Yeah. Well, I think one way or another they for another year. I thought that going into this year! <laughs> like, I don't know. For me, like, if all things remain equal like who would be like a larkin would obviously be the big one but i can't imagine he gets out of i don't think he's uh, leaving detroit no i don't think he's leaving detroit either like there are some good players it's just like they're all older yeah um jordan stall no lucic no or johnson the problem with, like, like this connecting thing you know you mentioned just moving him for cap like the it would have given the impression that something would be different and like it's what they did last summer. Like with the yep. benefit of hindsight, what did they do in you know twenty twenty one? You Tyler Bertuzzi. Sorry, before I missed. It was like a, you... uh, yeah, it was a swing and miss on Ryan Ellis who got hurt, and it's not really their fault. That and... trade's a wash. That's what it is. It, like that, and then you know, way overpaid for Ristolainen and didn't get Sam Reinhardt. I'm still fucking angry about that. 
But, like, you didn't do much. Then you filled, you know, Martin Jones and Keith Yandel, Derek Broussard, just a bunch of fucking random dudes. But it gave the impression that things could change because there were different faces and different opportunities and uh, new comings and goings. You're running it back with the almost identical roster that finished fourth worst in the league with 25 wins last season. You know, no wonder why everybody's got a fucking sour taste in their mouth right now, because you didn't give anybody anything to look forward to. If you got rid of Konechny and Frost and signed Dylan Strom and Nino Niederreiter, are those two going to change things drastically for the Flyers? No, probably not. But you know what? Those are two brand new faces in your middle six to play with, to give some hope to this group. But no! No! We got JVR coming back for yet another year. A fucking meaningless 20-goal season, I'm sure, coming our way. And Travis Konechny, seven years into his fucking career, still relying on potential he had six, seven years ago. Awesome! You know, how is anybody supposed to get excited for this? Yeah, and and that's the issue here, is that you're going to have to go through another year where you're asking people to be patient. And, like, look, I'm just running After lying with, like, to their faces. And lying to their faces. Like... And look, like I'm just throwing up like a random depth chart here on my phone for 2023-2024. And like, I think it's relatively possible. But like, I'm saying like, this is why I th- and it would take a lot of shit going right. But this is why like, maybe like, I'm still just like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna fucking bite the bullet for this season. I'm gonna watch because it's I'm a complete waste to- of time this year. It is. It's a waste of time. The only thing that I'm kind of curious to see is because I think for the first time ever, this, like, the players now are facing a coach who has carte blanche. He has carte blanche. And I think that, you know, all the old leaders are gone. You know, Giroux, Gossespierre, Voracek, they're all out. So, like, you don't have, like, that lingering, like, you know, like, I guess a legacy guy there. Like, everything is out. Like, that's one thing. Again, I feel bad saying this, but, like, I'm really happy Claude Giroux is in here. Like, now that the dust has settled, I think we talked about it, too. Like, isn't it just kind of, like, relieving a bit? It was time that era was over, yes. Yeah. So, like, I think that, like, no matter how bad that they hate this guy, like, I think that John Tortorella is probably going to finish his contract here. I would assume like, so. I think he's here for four years, you know, minimum. That's my sense of the matter. So I'm curious to see, like, how he deals with certain guys. Like, put up or shut up for a guy like Travis Konechny. Like, Ivan Provov, like, okay, you got the benefit of the doubt with playing with fucking bums, but now how would it be, like, now that you have, like, a legitimate coaching staff and a legitimate partner? So that's the one thing I'm interested in. But again, it does kind of suck from the standpoint that we know that he, that, like, nothing's going to come of it. Because like you said, like even if they make the playoffs, what are they going to do? Nothing? Going to get their that, teeth kicked in by Florida or something in the first round. I would assume they at least put up a fight. Would you think, or are we giving Tortorella too much credit? It's not Tortorella I'm discrediting here. It's the rest of this fucking shithead roster I'm discrediting. But do you think that like Tortorella could you know, make them better than they are? Sure, but again, I don't think he's fucking, he ain't Jesus incarnated. I don't know. I think towards getting them to the playoffs is about the absolute max you're going to get out of this team. I, I just, there's no scenario in my mind where they're pulling a you know 2012 Kings on us here and they're making it to 
no snagging the eighth seed and then making a miracle run and winning the cup based on their strong defense. It's not going to happen. You know, I, I think you, the absolute maximum we're dealing with here is, you know, against all odds, snagging a wild card spot. Maybe a meteor hits New York City and takes out the Islanders, Rangers, and Devils, and, you know, by default they make it in the Metro Division. But other than that, like, fucking hell, man. I don't know what we're dealing with here. Uh, oh, with, we're, with you're team. dealing... Like, I, I think that the only thing about this team is that, like, they're going to be, like, a no-quit team. So at least you're not going to see guys, like, overtly mailing it in. Except I think. Yeah, well, hopefully he's not even there. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets buried in Lehigh. I would fucking hope so, but I'm not going to believe it till I see it. And if I have to watch James Henry and like in Lehigh, I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. <laughs> Imagine. Fucking hell. Put the C on him. Ugh. But again, so like, look, I'm not, and maybe I'm just being a bit like positive right now. And look, but I'm completely, I'm, that'll change by the time December rolls around. Don't worry. But full disclosure, I'm completely looking past this season, like a hundred percent. But like, I'm saying that, like, let's say you go into a seat and like a uh, next season. Okay. Like 2023 and you have, you cleared connect me off the, the roster, Morgan Frost doesn't cut it, and you have a lineup, something along the lines of this. Bertuzzi, Horvat, Forster, Farabee, Couturier, Atkinson, Kate, Hayes, Tippett, Delorier, Lazinski, Allison. How would you feel about that in a year's time? The flaw in your plan is assuming they're going to add anybody next summer. Yeah, well, they're like I said, I, I don't think, but I don't think that it's the same management group next summer. <sighs> It probably won't be, but they're still not going to move any cap. It's too hard to move cap. <laughs> Can't do it. Do you think that was bullshit, what he was talking about? I do. I I, I just... You could have done it if you really wanted to. And the, I guess I the think... lack of movement around the league like does back him up to an extent, but you could have just paid the price and done what you had to do there. It's weird that they're giving off the aura of being a competitive team, but they're terrified to move to 2023 first. If you're convinced this team is a playoff team and is going to win, which is what they're trying to tell me. Which I don't think they think that. I think they're lying. Why would you value the draft pick? You know, And the only reason they value the draft pick is because they know they're going to fucking suck next year. So why are they telling me that they're trying to win? Why are they? Why is the propaganda machine spinning so goddamn hard and trying to tell me that this is the fucking team that's gonna take this you know city back to glory? Why? What happens when we get to American Thanksgiving at the end of November and they've got like five wins and there's three hundred people in the Wells Fargo Center every night? Then what? We were supposed to be yeah. competitive. What happened? Which is it, why... Doesn't it do more damage to Fletcher's reputation telling us that they're going to be competitive and then they ultimately shit the bed? If Verse is just coming out and saying, hey, let's take a year or two to figure our shit out here and then we'll get back to it. I just... The, the, the messaging, the branding, the, the, the ideas they're trying to shove down our throats that this is going to be a good team and then bringing in nobody and running it back with Delorier and JVR and all these same shitheads we've been watching fail for years now... I just, I don't get it. I do not understand their approach to this offseason in any way whatsoever. Which is where the problem is, because I think that if there was clearly a plan in place, we would feel differently. But there's just so much mixed messaging being sent out from the organization. 
which to me tells me that there is no plan, that they're kind of going day by day. And I think that's the biggest issue with Chuck Fletcher is that he makes moves based on day by day. He doesn't make calculated moves based on a plan. Like, look at, like, the trajectory of his, you know, his career with the Flyers. You know, the first, I would say, calendar year, he did really good. You know, he cleared out all the dead weight off the roster. You know, he moved out guys like Dale Weiss. He moved out guys like, uh, who was the other Christian one? Christian um, Foline. Christian Foline. Brian Froze, he, whatever the hell his name was. But Jordan Wheel, he Jordan traded Wheel, away. Yeah. Taylor Lear, he got rid of. Anthony you know, Stolarz, I'm still angry about An that one. Anthony Stolarz, you know, moved on from him. You know, he traded Wayne Simmons, albeit kind of mounted to nothing. But that's not really his fault, I would say. Like, that was Ron Hexel holding on for too long. Mm -hmm. He brings in Kevin Hayes. He brings in Niskanen. He brings in Justin Braun. All that. So, good on him in the first year. And again, like, I think that he did well in the draft. Like, I like, you know, trading back and still adding a guy like Cam York. I loved it when he moved up for Bobby Brink. I like those moves. You bring in a guy like Tyler Pitt, like, who worked out in the first year. Then you bring in guys at, like, or you move out, like, a J.F. Berube. I guess you could speak to him more than me, but never seen, like, a great option at the AHL level. So you've seen a guy clearly maneuvering pieces around to put a competitive team on the ice then the trade deadline comes around you add a whole lot of shit then after it blows up your in your face in the playoffs you add nothing absolutely nothing in the offseason aside from eric gustafson eric gustafson man i was so mad in that offseason <laughs> i wanted chris tanev so bad so now you say like, OK, so we went from, you know, turning over a decent portion of the roster to adding nothing the following year after it didn't work in the playoffs. It blows up in your face in 2021 and you say, OK, now we got to we got to change a large portion of the roster. He says all the right things. The definition of his insanity is trying the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Says all the right things last summer and last summer. I mean. The Ryan Ellis move, whatever, no harm, no foul, at least in my opinion. Yeah. I don't know how you feel. No, I'm, I'm, I'm on the same page. Like, whatever, didn't work. Shane Goss' despair, I mean, you paid a hefty price tag to get rid of him, but you had to get rid of that contract regardless. And this is kind of like the damned if you do, damned if you don't thing, that, like, people were mad that he paid a premium to get rid of Shane Goss' despair. Now they're mad they didn't pay a premium to get rid of JVR. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. So, so there's that. The wrist aligning thing, you know, I think that we're both fairly neutral on that. It's more so like more were or you less, in a yeah. I, it's again, were you in a position to make that type of move? I would argue twelve months later, probably not. The Cam Atkinson trade, I thought was excellent. Probably his best move to date, would you say? Volter? I am shocked at how much hate I see for Cam Atkinson on a regular basis on the Twitters. Did he not score thirty goals this year? Uh, I don't think he brushed thirty. Um he got to 20-something, but it, it is odd, like, the, the hate I see for him on just, like, a regular basis, like, outside of, like, the normal scapegoats of Ristolainen, like, he's probably one of the more hated players that's on this team right now, and I'm I'm always baffled by that. Yeah, so you make all these moves to bring in guys, and most of the individual moves last summer was okay. Obviously, Yandel sucked, Thompson wasn't great, Jones was mad. 23 but all, like, goals very... and 50 points last season for Kim Atkinson. In 71 games, 73. right? 
Okay. So, oh, 73. So he was 25 goal scorer, let's say, playing with shit. So still a good move. And Voracek scored, what, six? So. Something like that, yeah. So then this, then in the summer or during the season, you make all these trades to unload guys. Like you trade Giroud to Florida. You trade Justin Braun to uh, the Rangers. You trade Broussard to Edmonton. And then you're preaching aggressive retool, all this. And then we get what this summer was. So I just, when I look over the history of the movement of the Philadelphia Flyers under Chuck Fletcher, is that there's a lack of continuity. And that's the biggest issue to me is that there's just no clear-cut plan from start to finish. It's just he's kind of making moves based on where the wind is blowing. Again, do I think that all in all, he kind of fell ass backwards into a not-terrible scenario? Yeah, I do. But do I think he did this strategically, and how he got there certainly did not give me confidence into him steering the ship moving forward. And it's odd because so many of his moves individually, like, weren't terrible. That's uh, it. When you look at them in a vacuum. Yeah. Like, uh, just going move by move by move. Like, sure, you know, maybe a little too much first to line in, but at the end of the day, they needed a right-handed defenseman, and that was fine. And Ellis, as you alluded to, was a wash. He gave up Patrick Myers. Who gives a fucking shit about that one of those two? You know, all the moves individually. The Hayes contract, like, was probably a bit much, but whatever. You know, what's half a million dollars? It's so much of this stuff was just, it's not terrible, but it's just not enough. And when you don't go after the Debrin cats and Gaudreau's, when, you know, you look to gift horse in the mouth on that one, and now you're sitting here with another year of JVR and Konechny when you could have had legitimate upgrades to the team. And and, and I, I just don't, I don't see the, the, the bigger picture here. I don't know where you go from here. I don't know what the end game is. You're just pissing away a full another season with no clear-cut path to even make sure the kids get consistent ice time because JVR and Konechny and uh, uh, McEwen and Brown and Deloria, they're all under contract, and they're all probably going to be playing every single night. You know, if you were going to piss away a season, I wish they would have cleared out some of these roster spots. You know, and again, I guess in the whole grand scheme of there was not a whole lot of money moved. It's hard to seriously complain about that. It's not like a whole bunch of teams moved a whole bunch of money and the Flyers sat on their hands. It was difficult, I suppose. But, you know, trading Konechny for a fifth-round pick, but it means that Tyson Forrester's got a top-six roster spot next season. Great! That's what I would have done, but I don't know. What happens when, you know... Your fourth line is going to be Delorier, Brown, McEwen, and Lazinski's is still in the AHL. Allison's in the press box. Forrester's still in the AHL. And then you go into 23-24, putting way too many eggs in the basket of Cutter Gauthier making the jump and Forrester making the jump. And now you got a team full of rookies that are going to take two or three years to figure their own shit out at the NHL. Like, this year needs to be about transition. It needs to be letting the, the, the younger guys play, the guys that are now in their mid-fucking 20s because you wasted so much of their careers. Let's see some of that. And that that's going to be the night-to-night issue that I'm going to have with this team uh, as this season emerges here, is, is who am I watching play every single night? If it's JVR and fucking Patrick Brown, uh, we're going to have a fucking problem. But I guess we'll burn that bridge when we get there. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be the big telling factor, right, is like if a guy like Patrick Brown gets more ice time than Tanner Lazinski, or if, you know, Zach McEwen gets ice time over Isaac Ratcliffe or 
whoever Wade Allison. I just I'm not sure because I have heard in the past that maybe they don't want to play him unless he's like a top nine guy. But in that case, could you not like kind of maybe slide Noah Cates down to the third line or the fourth line rather? Like, I mean, I I'm excited mostly to see like the movement up front because like let's see like who are locks in terms of kids to make this team. Tippett, Frost, Cates, Tippett, Frost, and Lazinski. Cates are probably your three. Probably a third line to be honest. Beyond that, I mean, I would hope Lazinski and Allison. I would just, you know, Brink is obviously going to start the season on IR. But, uh, I don't know. Lazinski and Allison, maybe. I think Forrester, if I had to guess, he's starting the season in the AHL, but he's your bullet in the chamber in that one. If shit goes sideways, he's the one kid you can call up and, and let him do his thing in the NHL. And give a slight bit of hope towards, uh, towards the fans. So I, I would assume he starts in the A. Allison still isn't signed. Allison is still an RFA as of this recording. Yes, but like, but like, what kind of leverage does he have? Like, he's fucking awesome. That's what kind of leverage he has. I'd <laughs> give this guy fucking Max Steel right now and not even think twice about it. <laughs> well, like, and I guess like my thing would be is like, let's say the season ends, they finish tenth in the East, which would be the worst possible landing spot. But that's probably where they're going to end up. But like. You know, Frost has a decent year. Tippett is a solid 40 to 50 point guy. Cates impresses. Lazinski proves himself to be like a solid bottom six center. And let's say like a Tyson Forster comes onto the scene and establishes himself as like an everyday NHLer. Would that be like a successful season? I would be fine with that. If so, like for the kids you... take a step. It's more the fact of if the kids are held back and JVR plays 82 games as the second line left wing, I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. Yeah, well, that's that's the big thing. But again, like, I guess, but I also don't want to give Tortorella too much credit. Like you said, he isn't Jesus Christ himself. So you don't want to give the guy too much credit. I guess it's just, it really depends. Like, I'm really looking forward to the the, the the Flyers even threatening the playoffs is going to be because of Tortorella. This is the yeah. same exact roster that finished fourth worst in the league last year. The only reason I'm giving them any sort of credit at all is because of Tortorella. And I guess it kind of depends. Well, like, I'm curious to see how the defense holds up because you're basically now going to have D'Angelo and York instead of Yandel and Sealer every day. Yes. So that's not, that's a pretty significant upgrade. That's a decent little upgrade there, yeah. And, like, I think that, like, the only problem I have with this defense is how they're going to be, like, in their own end defending. Because I think in terms of moving the puck, this is a pretty good defense in terms of puck moving. Yeah. It's really just going to be, like, how can they defend once they're pinned in their own end? (laughs) Which, you know, we've seen the best of uh, Risto and Sanheim and D'Angelo trying to play defense in the past. So not always pretty. I think York is the big X factor on defense. That's how York has a lot to prove this year. He's he's gonna be busy trying to overthrow Sanheim for that uh, second pair roll, and hell, maybe even Provar for the first pair roll. I mean, like, look if if York kind of just blows the doors, I just I don't know. I me because even I, I was about to say like even if like he proves to be better than Provarov, but the thing is is that. For me, Provorov at his salary, that's fine for a number two defenseman. Yeah, six point like, seven is is fine. Like when people talk about, like, well, he makes the money of a number one. No, he doesn't. No, he <laughs> no. doesn't. Not in this day and age. Hell no. 
No, is he making nine million dollars? Cool. Then he's not making no investment <laughs> money. So, I mean, I I don't know. I you know he's younger. He has co- like he's locked up until he's twenty eight years old. Like, I mean, I guess that is kind of a bad thing because then, like, are you going to have to give him a contract that until he's sick, uh, until he's 36? Well, that's how it works around here, yeah. So, I mean, because then, like, in, as opposed to Sanheim, that it would be, like, probably a eight-year deal until he's, let me see, 27, probably until he's 35. So, it's all the same difference, maybe. Yeah, they're more or less the year. same age. Sanheim's a year older, but. Yeah, so, I don't know. Or you so, get rid of Sanheim at the deadline, get an extra first-round pick, move up Cam I, York, call up Zamula, roll with Provorov, York, Zamula, York overthrows Provorov next season. Then we can move on with our goddamn lives. Adam Gidding will be the third pair in two years. Well, that's what I was thinking. Like, if like let's say by some grace of God you have Ellis get healthy, and you have, let's say, York, Ellis, Provorov, Ristolainen... Ginning and D'Angelo as your defense in a year or two from now. It's not terrible. It's a whole lot of eggs in the basket of that top pair, though. Yeah. But again, I guess it, but like, you would just be very strong on your left side. Like, you'd be top heavy on your left side and deep on your right side. So you'd be having like Provov and York eating the most minutes and then kind of like, and it also depends what Ellis you're getting back. Are you going to get an Ellis back that you really have to like strategically deploy him? Cause like if he comes back and he's just like, you can only play him 18 minutes a night. Well then I guess that's where D'Angelo comes into account where you can kind of feed him all the offensive zone starts and whatnot and like take away power play minutes and all that. Which is kind of the same way that, like, I was talking about Couturier when people were talking about, like, a power play. And I'm just, like, based on what Sean Couturier just went through in terms of injuries and back surgery you and all that. You are not putting him on the power play next season. There's no way. I, I just, maybe the second unit. But, like, it's just, I don't, like, for me, I think I said on Twitter, like, I would want Tippett, Frost, and York on the top power play unit next year. Like, what do you have to lose? Like, I know yeah. it won't be. I know that it's going to be D'Angelo out there and JVR. Well, actually, I don't know. I really don't know. I really don't know how it's going to be. Power play can be different depending on which kids make the team. If Allison's in the NHL, I'd assume he's in the power play somewhere. If Allison made the team, I would probably have it something along the lines of Allison net front, tip it on the, in the Giroux spot, Atkinson in the trigger position, Frost on the half wall, where Voracek used to be and D'Angelo at the top. That's what I would do, yeah. And then your second unit, York would be there. I guess, like, at the second unit, you'd just roll out the fucking, the, the band of misfits. The old top unit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> JVR net front, Konechny in the trigger spot, Sean Couturier somewhere, and then probably York and, I guess, Provorov on the top. Or if you don't want to play Provorov, I would still not mind to see Rista line and get consistent power play time. It'd be nice to see him get a look there, yeah. So that's probably what I would do. Or but you Anthony, go for... what about Sanheim? I just I know there's I... one listener that's yelling at their steering wheel right now. That's why I had to bring that up. He's not a power play know. guy. He's not. <laughs> that's not his thing. That's just, listen. He creates his chances on the rush. He's not a point guy. 
It's just, it's not his thing. He was there for most of the end of last season. I always, yeah. <laughs> I always thought this was funny. People go, well, he's never getting any power play time. I'm like, you're clearly not watching the games because the fucker was on the power play for the last, at least half the season. And he just <laughs> didn't do much there. That's just not his thing. That's not where he creates his chances. He carries Which the puck okay. into the zone and sets up a pass. Which is okay. Yeah. Like, I, I have no problem that he's a very good, like, extremely good five-on-five defenseman. You unlocked him and you need him as a five-on-five guy. It's cool. Now you have two guys that are basically going to be injections into the into uh, the lineup this year that weren't regulars last year. D'Angelo and York, both guys who can run power plays. You know, D'Angelo's going to run the first one. York's probably going to run the second one. And maybe you have a Provorov because of how good his shot is from the point or Ristolainen because historically he has played well in the power play. Man, if York can run that power play, that is a huge plus in his favor over either Sanheim or Provorov. Exactly. And then it, then you would have to kind of... It, you, I think he is. like I think he's going to... Unless he completely face plants this year, but especially the fact that he's going to be playing with Justin Braun and not playing on the right side with Keith Yandel or Nick Sealer. Mm-hmm. Like, I think... I don't know. I, I'm... This defense, I'm looking forward to seeing. I'm looking forward to seeing how it how it comes. They are going like, to live all... and die by the blue line, for sure. Yep. Well, I mean, now I'm hungry. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the correlation is between flyers talking hunger, but I, I got a growl on now. <laughs> well, I think we'll call it a day. So Anthony can go eat. <laughs> it is dinner time, after all. So. Unusual time we record, but you know, gotta get uh, gotta get the show back up. It's season five, goddamn. So, uh, I don't know when I'll be back next time. Actually, we'll figure it out. Oh, we'll bring somebody back. We'll get the show going. I'm still in vacation mode here, so we'll uh, get the well, show. Well, we could back be up. back in a week or two. Yeah, we can always talk again next week. Yeah, continue our strategy going into the season. Yeah, maybe we could come up with lines or whatnot. Even yeah. though they'll probably make me depressed, but whatever. Maybe they'll maybe they'll uh, make a big trade between now and then. Yeah, <laughs> probably, yeah. are you crazy? Are you nuts? Chuck Fletcher's been like wasted for the last day or, or the last month. I, he's been on a beach in Maui for at least a month now. <laughs> <sighs> All right, everyone. Uh, at Dan the Flyer Van, at Brotherly Puck, at Brotherly underscore Pod. Like I said, we'll be back sometime next week. I assume Shane's back on Monday, as always, and uh, we'll start uh, getting the shows uh, back up rolling here for Season 5. So, uh, Anthony, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at adamarco 25 All right, everyone. Until next time, goodbye and good night. We're going to see you, baby, what the cost.